You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Good morning. How is everyone doing this morning? I am hopped up on caffeine and ready to go. Anybody else excited to be here this morning? Cool. <laughs> uh, man, we are uh, we're moving into a new kind of movement of our series. So if you've been here at all during the month of January, the last four weeks, uh, we've been doing a series called Pursued, and we've really begun with digging into what is God's good design in creation? What does that mean for our work lives? What does that mean for, for the way we choose to live? And, and how did God intend to create? And how did he create? And how did he intend the world to be? And uh, today marks kind of a shift in that series because we're really moving into the second movement where things went terribly, terribly wrong in the story. And uh, this series is going to lead us into Easter, really, where we, we go through all the big movements of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so today is when we begin uh, the section on the fall. And so I want to begin this morning by asking a pretty loaded question. And this is a rhetorical question. You do not need to answer this out loud. But I want to begin by asking what I believe is a pretty loaded question, and it's this. Are people mostly good or are people mostly bad? That was a rhetorical question, Dan. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Are people mostly good or are people mostly bad? Here's how I think most people tend to answer this type of question, both inside the church and outside the church. Now, I don't have any data or statistics to back this up. I'm just kind of going on based on most of the conversations I have and what I see on social media and things like that. But here's how I think most people answer this question. I think most people say, ah, I think people are mostly pretty good. Like if you were to open up somebody and look inside of them that, that what you would see is an ocean of kind of goodness, acts of good service, a love for, for neighbor, people doing the best they can to care for their neighbor and family. But in that ocean of good, what I think most people would say is in that ocean of good, there are little blips or little islands of mistakes or sin or shortcomings or acts of selfishness where we tend to hurt people or whatnot, but, but for the most part, people are, are by and large pretty good. That's one kind of answer. I think another way people answer this question is they say, yeah, people are, are mostly good, but there's, there's a few bad apples in the bunch, right? There's a few really bad people in a mix of mostly good people, so they point to the people like the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Castros and all of those people who are dictators, and they say, yeah, the people are mostly good, but there's, there's some really bad apples in the bunch. I would say there's a couple significant problems with this type of response to the question, are people mostly good or mostly bad? Namely this. In the United States alone, every single year, there are an estimated 10 million instances of domestic violence, many of which go unreported. 
And by the way, there's virtually no difference between that happening inside and outside the church. In the U.S. alone, 44 million people are living below the poverty line. Every single year in this country, three and a half million people make a plan for suicide. And about half of those, 1.4, actually attempt it. Since Roe v. Wade was legalized, there have been over 60 million abortions in the United States and 424,000 kids in the foster care system right now. You see, friends, sin is not the islands of our existence. Sin is the ocean of our existence inside. You don't get to 40 million people in slavery in the world today because of character blips. You get there because there's a disease. There's a disease that weaves itself through every aspect of our lives, that infects every area. You don't get to 40 million people being trafficked and living in sex slavery without the demand of the 90% for that. And perhaps... One of the most dangerous effects of sin of all is that it can blind us to seeing it within ourselves. It can blind us from seeing it within ourselves. You see, the last four weeks, we've talked about God's good creation, but 13 chapters after God declares all of relationships good in his world, 13 chapters later, nations are already at war with one another. The story went horribly wrong at some point. I love how author Dane Ortland describes kind of the disease, the ocean of sin inside each of us. This is what he says. He says, the ocean of sin flows down through every generation. Its tragic repercussions infecting every area of our existence. Our bodies start powering down from age 30 on. I love seeing that. I'm turning 34 in a month. Disease and natural calamities sweep away large numbers of us in unpredictable horrors. And most insidious of all, our minds and hearts have been infected. We crave the forbidden. We celebrate others' misfortune. We hoard rather than give. In short, we construct our entire lives around the throne of self. You know, when the Bible traces generations, it uses this metaphor over and over again that humans, humans are acting less like God are less like humans and more like beasts of the field, warring with each other, one-upping each other, conflicting with each other. And you do not need to look far to see how that is impacting not just our world today, but our very own lives. And so I want to begin by asking this question, how in the world did we devolve from being the image of God in the world to beasts of the field that look no different than animals? We got to this place because of a beast of the field. Yes, that is a snake. We got to this place because a snake, a beast of the field, used one method to convince us to become less like God and more like the beast of the field. He used one method, and the method is this that the snake's method is to distort your thoughts. To distort your thoughts. To distort your thoughts about God. 
to distort your thoughts about you and to distort your thoughts about life. And when the snake was successful in distorting the thought life of the very first humans, Adam and Eve, sin spread faster than Omicron. Welcome to part two of our series. How is that for a dramatic intro? I've been looking forward to that all week. You see, it's, it's right after the, the very first humans are, are deceived by the spirit of the snake that God actually confronts them and he speaks to them and he warns that the beast of the field, the snake, has waged a war inside every single heart and mind of every single human from this time forward. This is God's warning in the curse in the fall. This is what he says to the serpent, to the snake. In Genesis 3.15, he says this. Maybe. Hey, Marcus. He's, he's uh, taking a nap. That's okay. This is what it says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. This is what he's saying to the snake. Now, I used to think, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to embarrass myself for a second here. I used to think that this verse was just why girls didn't like snakes. Like, literally, that's what I thought it meant. That's not at all what this verse is saying. Not at all. You see, when God says, I will put enmity between you, the snake, the spirit of the snake, and between the woman and between her offspring, what God is saying is that inside every human mind is a war. A war of the image of God on one hand and the image of the snake on the other. And they are battling for control of your mind and your heart. Jesus said it this way. He's speaking to religious leaders in John, and this is what he says. He actually points back to Genesis 3, and he says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar. That is his very identity. He is the father of lies. In other words, you claim you descended from Abraham. You claim you're God's chosen people, but really, you look a lot more like a beast of the field. You look a lot more like a descendant of the snake. And so as we dive into this conversation on sin over the next few weeks... I got to hold her earlier, by the way. She hugs very, very tight. Uh, <laughs> as we begin this conversation on sin, I want to just offer some good news and some bad news that I hope really frames the next few weeks diving into this together. Do you want the good news or do you want the bad news first? Bad news, sweet. Okay, so the bad news is this, that some of our thought lives are being destroyed by the lies of the stake. Like some of our thought lives, some of the things that enter our minds and land, get footing, take hold, are destroying us. Like for some of us, we're prisoners to shame. We're, we're prisoners to anger. We're prisoners to comparison. We're prisoners to anxiety. We're prisoners to bitterness. That's the bad news. The good news, though, is really good news for every single one of us. That God provides a path to freedom for those who are willing to get really honest about the lies. God provides a path to freedom for those of us who are willing to get really, really honest about the lies. Can we be a church that experiences freedom because we are willing to get really honest about the lies that a lot of us believe? 
That was not a rhetorical question. Can we be a church willing to experience freedom that God has for us because we're willing to get honest about the lies so many of us believe? That was much better. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to really dig into what are the distortions, what are the lies, what are the things that creep inside our minds and often land in a way that gives the spirit of the snake a foothold in each and every one of our lives. And so if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Genesis 3 for for most of our time together today. Genesis 3, and I want to begin with verse 1 here. This is what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now let's pause here just for a second. When Genesis describes the serpent as crafty, this is actually not a bad word. Crafty, whenever it's used, this specific word in the Hebrew scriptures, it is, it is actually a blessing, right? So it's often more translated than crafty. It's translated as wise or astute or aware or calculated, And so you have this serpent who is crafty, very wise, very astute, very aware, but what does he do with everything? He distorts the blessing. He distorts it. And so it's with that craftiness that he has distorted that he says to the woman, did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. See that craftiness being twisted? You will not surely die. He's distorting. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil." Now, there are three thought lies that the, that the enemy attacks in Adam and Eve in this moment. Three different areas that he attacks head on. And, and the nice part about the way he works is that he has not really changed his methods. Every time you see throughout Scripture, he does the same pattern over and over, whether it's tempting Jesus, whether it's tempting other people to sin. He uses the same exact pattern. The first area that he wants to really land in our thought patterns is this. Who is God? Like, who is God? Did God really say? Like, like for Eve, he, he, he paints God out to be this unloving, jealous tyrant who is holding out on you, who cannot be trusted. This is always his first line of attack in our thought patterns. Who is God? The second line of attack that he uses consistently in the way he distorts the truth is, who am I? Who, who am I? To Eve, you weren't created to live under the authority of the creator. You do you. Transgress your limitations and become whoever you want to be. Define your own identity. Seize your own destiny. You weren't created with limitations, Eve. You be you. You be like God. Who am I? This is his second line of attack on every human heart. And then the third one is this. What is the good life? What is the good life? Regardless of what God has said, Eve observes in the next few verses, the tree has good fruit. It's pleasing to the eye. It's good for food. And so no matter what God says, the tree still has good fruit. It's beautiful and delicious and worth consuming regardless of the cost. Follow your heart. This 
is the spirit of the snake that still lives in every single one of us. Instead of ruling the beast of the field like God intended, humans were created to exercise dominion, to rule over the beast of the field. Instead of ruling over, we have become just like the beast of the field, just like the serpent. And so, of course, if you know the story, Adam and Eve weigh the deception of the serpent, the distortion of the serpents. It begins in their minds, right? And it makes its way down to their hearts, and they end up consuming the fruit. And all hell breaks loose from there, literally. See, this is the tension of every single human heart. Who is God? Who am I? And what is the good life? Who is God? Who am I? And what is the good life? If you take notes, make sure to write down those three questions. We're going to revisit them a few different times today. Who is God? Who am I? And what is the good life? So a few, uh, couple months ago, about a month ago or so, uh, we celebrated Christmas, like chances are most of you did too. And uh, our kids got all kinds of toys, okay? Like just tons of toys, uh, mainly from their grandparents who love to spoil them. And so all of these toys are kind of laid out on the floor, and my son Theo, who's three years old, really was the only one that had his toys out. His sisters already picked up theirs, and so his toys were spread out all over the floor. Now, when I look at these toys, what do I see beside a minefield of Legos ready to lacerate my feet? (laughs) What I see when I look at these toys is evidence of a family that loves a little boy a lot, of grandparents who are ridiculously generous. So my wife, being the good mom that she is, doesn't pick up the toys for her son, but says, hey, buddy, it's it's time to pick up your toys. And when Theo looks at all of his toys spread out, what does he not see? He does not first see the generosity of a family that loves him, just like Adam and Eve. They don't see the generosity of a God who loves them first and foremost. Instead, my son Theo he just sees a bunch of toys that he's got to pick up. He's just, he just sees authority that he doesn't want to live under. That's all he sees. And so what does he do? He just throws himself down in a massive temper tantrum and says he is not going to pick up the toys. This speaks to who is God, who is authority in our lives. I'm not saying we as parents are God of our son. That's not what I'm saying at all. But it speaks to the nature of when we, when we look at God, when we think about God, do we first and foremost think of how generous and benevolent and merciful he is? Or do we think of someone who is distant and absent and just kind of hold it out on us? So my son doesn't want to pick up the toys, and so he's, nope, I'm not going to do it. And so Sam, my wife, asks him a couple more times, will you pick up the toys, pick up the toys, pick up the toys, and then finally she goes, Theo, if you don't pick up the toys, every single one of these are going in a trash bag, and you're not going to have them anymore. Why are kids so stubborn? And so he resolves that he would rather one-up his mom and have the toys thrown away than give in to what she wants. This is the second question here. Who am I? (laughs) And so one by one, my son picks up his toys and doesn't put them in the basket. He puts them in the trash bag. What a look of pride on his face. (laughs) Like he just one-upped his parents big time. 
And so he picks these up, and this just speaks to the distortion of, like, what is the good life? Like, like I would rather choose the path of destruction, self-destruction, than actually, like, live into the authority that has been placed over me. This is the distortion of the serpent. And by the way, many of you are asking, did you actually throw the toys away? No, we regifted them for his birthday in January, so it worked out really, really well. <laughs> See, that's a funny story about a three-year-old until you realize you do the exact same thing with God. And so do I. Who is God? You see, we don't see God as he is. We see God through the lens of our own distortions. We see God more often through the eyes of the snake than we see him for who he truly is. I cannot tell you the number of times that I have met people in this community who don't see God as he truly is, but they see God through the eyes of an absent or a distant or an abusive father. And so they don't see God as he is. They see God as they are, through the eyes of their own distortions. I cannot tell you how many times I meet people who, who don't see God as, as generous, but see God through the eyes of comparison. Like, why has he done for them what he won't do for me? Why did that person get promoted? Why does that person have the house or the car they have? Why is that person that way? And so we don't see God for who he is, a generous and benevolent God. We see God through our own distortions, through who we are. I could go on and on and on about the different ways that we do this because every single one of us do this. Who is God? He is holy down on you. He is absent and angry and distant. And then the second area, who am I? There's some of us, man, there's some of us that are just a product of our past. And we believe freedom is not possible for us, that we drag into this life generational carnage, just generational junk that has been passed on, whether it's addiction or absence from generation to generation. And so we believe the lie that you'll always be addicted, you'll always feel worthless because God is holding on on you. I hear a lot of people say, I'm not enough, which actually is technically a true statement. You aren't enough. But when you combine that with a distortion of the first question, who is God, it is absolutely lethal and deadly to believe you are not enough. Maybe you, when you come to the question, who am I, you, you can reinvent yourself to be anything you want to be. You're not happy in that marriage. Just leave. You meet a new person. Your spouse isn't satisfying you sexually. Just go find satisfaction somewhere else. Like, you're not happy with your sexuality. Just go change it. This is the message of the serpent over and over again in our minds. It's a distortion of who are we, who were we created to be? Which leads us into the last question here. What is the good life? What is the good life? It has led us to a place where we believe that my happiness can come at your expense, that my short-term arousal can come at the expense of long-term real wholeness, that I'm going to numb what I'm feeling and I'm going to escape and not deal. I know this is a heavier week this week, but sin is a heavy topic that is crushing some of us. So I'm not afraid to go there this week. 
Because when these distortions take root in our lives, we look less like the image of God and more like the image of the snake. In Genesis 3, this curse is just God going through every element of his creation and pointing out to men and women how it has been distorted by the spirit of the snake. Like to the woman, he says, you will now, from this point forward, be at war with your own child and childbirth because this spirit lives in you now. That you will be at war with your husband and he will dominate you, is what he says to the woman, because this spirit lives in you now. To the man, he says, you want to be like a beast of the field? By all means, be my guest. This, this creation that I gave you that is beautiful, that was designed to be cultivated, now is going to produce thorns and thistles that you will be no different than the snake who crawls on it, that you will not eat the beautiful vegetation or just eat the beautiful vegetation that I've given you. You will now eat the grass of the field just like who? The beast of the field. And when you die, you'll return to the dust. And who eats the dust? The snake eats the dust. I just picture God over and over. Just, this is not what I intended. This is not what I intended. This is not how it's supposed to be. I mean, can you imagine the pain in God's voice, in his heart, as every single aspect of his good, beautiful creation is distorted by the lies of the enemy? Can you imagine the pain in God's eyes when he looks at your life and he sees the thoughts that take hold, that imprison you. You see, the beast of the field has waged a war of distortion inside every single human heart and mind. It is the image of God and the image of the snake at war within you. In fact, one generation later, after Adam and Eve's sin, there's an image of the snake in Eve's son Cain Right? The Bible describes sin as almost like an animal-like thing, like sin is crouching at your door like a beast of the field. It desires to have you. And what does God say to Cain? He says, you must learn to rule over it. And yet Cain gives in to the lie about who is God, who am I, and what is the good life. And Cain, like a snake in the field, sneaks up behind his brother and he kills him. Some of us are imprisoned by our own thoughts, and we don't even know it. Some of us are more bothered that there is a snake on this stage than we are that there is a snake living inside of our hearts. There was a man who, uh, who owned an eight-foot python. And uh, it's not this. This is a boa constrictor, not, not this snake. But he owned an eight-foot python. And uh, one day, he started getting really, really concerned that uh, this snake was sick because it stopped eating. And so he would feed it, you know, mice, and you would feed it rabbits, and it just wanted nothing to do with the food that he was feeding him. And so this man got really concerned about a snake, that it was sick, that it was dying, that it was not well. And so he took the snake into the vet, and he said, Doctor, well, like, what's going on with my snake? I think, I think he's sick. I think he's dying. And the doctor began asking different questions about the snake's kind of patterns. And so what is the snake's schedule? And the man's like, well, she, you know, he just kind of slithers around my house, and at night he sleeps with me and cuddles up with me. This man is single for obvious reasons. And uh, he, he just kind of, you know, the snake just kind of cuddles up with me at night, and that's all really normal, but like the snake won't eat. 
you know what the doctor said to the man? He said, your snake's not sick. Your snake's not dying. Your snake is cuddling up to you at night because he is sizing you up to eat. And he wants to know how big he needs to be to be able to digest you. This is the power of the snake in each of our hearts and minds. That it is subtle. That it can imprison us. That it can put us in a place of just paralysis. See, the snake knows that thoughts of anxiety and comparison and inadequacy will enter your mind. Those thoughts are inevitable. Every single one of us feel thoughts of anxiety, feel thoughts of paralysis and shame and doubts about God and temptations. Those things are inevitable. Those will enter our minds. But what the snake's job is and what he desires to do is to get those things to land deep into our identities where we start to live them out and we start to believe them with everything that we are so that we're enslaved to them. And here's what I am here to tell you. Thoughts of anxiety are inevitable. The prison of anxiety is not. Thoughts of comparison, you can't always control what's entering in. Thoughts of comparison and adequacy are inevitable. The prison of comparison is not inevitable. Thoughts of temptation are inevitable. Even Jesus was tempted. The prison of temptation that leads to sin is not inevitable. We cannot control our thoughts that enter our mind, but God has provided the path to freedom so that those thoughts don't land and enslave us. Who is God? Who am I? And what is the good life? You see, even in the midst of the carnage of sin, God provides a path for freedom. He provides an out for every single one of us. See, I just read the first half of Genesis 3.15 at the, at the beginning. I want to read the whole verse now. This is what it says in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you, snake, and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And then it gets singular, talking about a specific individual, a specific person. It says this, he, this person, will crush your Head. I'm not going to crush the head of the snake. Her name's Gamora. She's very nice. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. In other words, even in the midst of the carnage of sin, God has ushered in a promise that this benevolent God, who's very who he is, has been distorted by human beings, that we don't see him clearly as he is. Even in the midst of this, he makes a promise because he is not indifferent about the slavery of sin. He is not indifferent about the ways that you are in bondage and I am in bondage to the stuff of this world. He's not indifferent about those things. And so what he does is he promises a future human that will crush the head of the serpent. And I even love that he says and will bruise his heel because that crushing of the head does not come without great cost. And you got a preview of this picture already, but every time I think of this verse, I think of this picture up here. See, on the left, you have Eve, head down, shame in her eyes, the spirit of the snake wrapped around her legs, the forbidden fruit dropped to her feet. And who is she standing and facing? She's standing and facing Mary, who is carrying Jesus, the Savior of the world, 
representing the crushing of this serpent's head, this sin nature's head once and for all in every single one of us. You see, Jesus, Jesus bears each aspect of the curse on your behalf. Pain to childbirth, Jesus suffering so that many sons could enter into glory. Thorns and thistles coming from the ground, Jesus bore a crown of thorns on his very head. Sweat and agony as people worked the ground. Jesus, Jesus endured sweat and agony and literally tears of blood as he contemplated the calling and the work that was before him of the cross. Sin bringing sorrow and pain and suffering. Jesus bearing, he be, Isaiah 53 says, he became a man of sorrow. He became a person of suffering. Why? So that that snake no longer needed to have a grip and a hold on us. So as we close today, I just I want to speak pastorally for just a moment. Because I know there's a lot of us who maybe have claimed the name of Jesus for our whole lives, for years and years and years, and yet this snake still has a very tight grip around our ankles, and we are like shackles attached to it. Now, for some of us, we're imprisoned by our own thoughts. We're imprisoned by the lies about who God is that we've been fed, maybe through a distant father, an abusive relative. What God's invitation is for you today is to say, hey, begin here. Will you see me as I am? Will you see me as I am? You see, Jesus confronted this. Who is God? This is what Jesus said about who God is. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Why? Because you have seen the person of Jesus. Meaning that if you really want to know what God is like, do not look through the eyes of your own distortion. Look to the person of Jesus Christ. The second one here, who am I? Who am I? Jesus says this, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Who am I? Like some of us, our life is just marked by binging Netflix and news cycles and social media, and, and, and this book stays closed on our shelf. And what Jesus' invitation is, is he's saying the truth is not a what, the truth is a who. You want to know the truth? You want the path to freedom? Look to the person of Jesus. Amen. And the promise is you will experience the freedom that comes through him. And then the last one here, what is the good life? What is the good life? Jesus says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to all of its fullness. You want to know what the good life is? <laughs> Look to the person of Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can reverse the image of the snake that has lived inside of each and every one of us. 
He is the only one that can restore the image of God to its fullness in each and every one of us. And the invitation is laid out this morning. Will you receive that? Freedom from sin is not just about trying harder or doing better. Freedom from sin is taking hold of life that is truly life and that is the person of Jesus Christ and letting him come in and do the work on your behalf and wash you as clean and as pure as snow because sin has no grip on your life anymore. And so as we close this morning, we're going to respond in worship. But if you're here in person or you're watching online and you've never taken hold of the life that is truly life, you've never taken hold of the person of Jesus, you've never repented of your sins and said, Jesus, I want to get really honest about the areas of my life that I see the world more through the eyes of the snake than I do through your eyes. God, I want those eyes to see. I want that heart. I want to be transformed from the inside out. If that is you and you've never done that, don't walk outside these doors with the image of the snake still at war inside of you. Because true freedom is found in the person of Jesus. Amen. And so after the service, just after we're done singing and worshiping, and when we close, I'll be up here available. We'll have a couple other people up here as well. If you want to just pray together, if you want to process through some things together that you are walking through and working through in your own heart and mind, some of those lies, those distortions, those thought patterns, we will be up here and we would love, love, love to pray with you and to talk with you. But in the meantime, let's just respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing in each and every one of our hearts as we let go of the lies and take hold of the person of Jesus. Let me offer a prayer and then I'm going to invite you to stand as we worship. God, the grip of sin is strong in our lives. The temptation to be less than human, the temptation to redefine who you are, redefine who we are, redefine what it means to have a full life. God, all of those are, are just bombarding us every single day of our lives. And Jesus, this morning, we acknowledge the strength and the hold and the grip of sin. But Jesus, more importantly than that, we acknowledge that your ability to crush the head of the serpent is even stronger. That it was on a cross that you hung on a pole for the world to see, for the world to mock. You took on all of the shame, all of the regret, all of the anxiety, all of the distortions of this world so that we could see who God is clearly. And so, Jesus, I just pray for people who are here in service this morning, who are watching online, who have not taken hold of that life. God, will you soften their hearts? God, will you invite them to respond to the message of who you truly are and give them eyes to see the world that way? May those of us who maybe have called ourselves Christians for years and decades who have never actually dealt with some of that stuff under the surface, God, some of those distortions, some of those lies. May we stop just flooding our minds with junk, God, and may we flood our minds with the truth of who you are that can only be found in your word. That you are the way, the truth, and the life. That you are the one who sets us free from the lies of the enemy. And that you are the one who has abundant life and you offer it to every single one of us. And so, Jesus, this morning we acknowledge our need for you, our dependence on you. 
And it's all in the holy name of Jesus Christ that we pray. And everybody said, amen.